when you have an opportunity to teach somebody something, you suddenly realize this very humble moment where, okay, I don't really understand this. <laughs> and you actually need to rethink a lot of things and relearn a lot of things to be able to teach somebody something. Welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and on this episode 132, I receive Evangelina Ferreira. Eva currently works as a UI developer and has been teaching web technologies at the National Technological University of Argentina for more than eight years. Throughout her career, Eva has been deeply involved in the Argentinian web community. She enjoys giving workshops and talks and is the organizer of the CSSConf Argentina conference. Eva, welcome to Dev Journey. Hello, thank you for having me here. Hey, it's my pleasure. So Eva, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looks like and imagine how to shape their own future. So as always, let's go back to your beginnings, shall we? Where would you place the start of your developer's journey? Well, I think I would place it in high school when I was about 14 years old. I didn't know much about what to do after high school. I remember that when I was younger, I wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, a vet. And it was like, Eventually I realized, you know, what that involved and it was like, no, it's like being a doctor for cats and dogs. And if I don't like the idea of being a doctor because I don't like blood and all that, there's no way I'm going to enjoy <laughs> being a doctor to cats and dogs. So I dropped that eventually. And then it was like, okay, I have no clue. Um, time passed and eventually I began having a blog on on the Blogspot platform. Um, it was really depressing because it was like I was a teenager, I wasn't having a good time in high school. So it wasn't really a fun blog. But I discovered that I could, you know, tweak a little bit the HTML and CSS of that blog to mm -hmm. make it look a little bit different than the others. And I found that really interesting. So I began doing that. And then I thought, okay, hey, can, can I do this outside of this platform? Can I actually create my own stuff? So I eventually began researching on my own, um, creating my first web page, which was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> it was really bad looking. <laughs> it was a very orange looking website with blue links because I couldn't figure out how to change the color of the links. <laughs> so they just remain blue. <laughs> and it was to, to share the booklets of CD albums. So I would ask my friends to lend me their CD, their music CDs. I would like scan them and put them on their website. So you have the whole alphabet and you could actually filter through. Okay. I want to see American Idiot by Green Day and you would click on it and find it and find the pictures on the inside. So it was really nice. I'm really proud of that, <laughs> even though it was horrible. <laughs> um, then I suddenly end up in, in an NGO um, called Puerta 18, where they taught me how to, 
how to use technology in a very creative way. I began doing workshops of traditional animation and then um, 3D stuff, some of robotics, which was which was really fun, and also programming. And I used to program at high school, but I used, I used to program really kind of boring stuff for a teenager. They used to teach me um, Turbo Pascal. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know about that name, but it was a really boring thing. So <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like pushing teenagers into learning how to code. It was mostly like teaching teenagers that coding was boring because it was like this, <laughs> it was this blue screen with yellow letters. And he was like, no way, I don't want to, to be a software developer at all. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. by going into this NGO, I ended up learning that programming could be fun because I end up learning something like Adobe Flash. And I know Adobe Flash is long gone, but for many of us, it was like this place of creativity where we could create this kind of animations or this kind of website using a little bit of code and suddenly finding this sweet spot for, at least for me, that I really like front end, where you could be creative writing code. And it blew my mind because I had this very silly idea about programming that it was boring because that's what they taught me in high school. So getting out of that and seeing how else we could use that, it was very, very interesting. So I began doing more websites um, for music bands that I like and all that. And I eventually end up studying a little bit um, outside um, high school and begin teaching at university and learning a lot in there. And yeah, eventually end up here. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. I I love how um, many stories start like this with MySpace, with Blogspot, with, um, I can't remember all the names that were uh, dropped into me, uh, onto me for the, uh, for the past uh, years with some kind of platform where people were not interested at all in programming or web development or anything. We're doing completely something else, but doing so started tweaking with CSS and and HTML and maybe a bit of JavaScript. And suddenly they woke up three years down the line and they were coding uh, full-fledged websites and, and doing yes. <laughs> web development completely. It's really funny how these um, very uh, small things start and, and, and hook you up and then and then life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do, do you remember when, when the, the, the bit flipped in your, in your head um, saying, hey, what I learned was programming, but what I'm doing is programming as well. And programming used to be flagged as not fun in my mind, and now it's fun. Do you remember this transition when, when that happened? Yes. Yes. It was at, at this NGO. I was, I don't remember. Yeah. I remember I was actually creating a survey. Um, so I was creating this website by, uh, it was a band called Kitty, a metal band from Canada that I really loved. So I was creating the website and I wanted to create a survey for people to actually tell me which one of their albums was their favorite. Um, so. I plug in PHP and my SQL database. Um, I remember somehow I had to do a loop. Um, I didn't exactly remember how, so I ended up asking one of the, the trainees that was working there, hey, how, how can I solve this? 
And he ended up explaining me, to me, hey, you have to make a loop. Do you know how to make a for loop? And I was like, oh my God, yes, I know how to make a for loop. I actually saw that in Turbo Pascal. Oh, mm -hmm. that's interesting. So this works outside Turbo Pascal as well. And that means that it's not that bad to learn programming because I can use it to make something more fun outside of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, if you could go back and and uh, help the persons who were teaching you Turbo Pascal in in high school, <laughs> what, what would you tell them? What what, what you, would you do differently so that still with Turbo Pascal, maybe you could do something interesting that would be interesting to the teenager that you were? I think I would try to take it to to animations or to to some movement because I think this one is kind of funny to actually make something move and seeing how it moves and understanding the animation. So I'd say maybe try to get it there if if you can change the language. Because if you can, then that would be interesting to even take a look at learning how to program by making JavaScript animations. Because it's so much easier to, to actually write something and just run it on your browser and immediately seeing the result. You don't have to compile anything weird or like that. So I think I would take it to to the most creative thing they can think of. Um, most probably animations, I think, they are the most interesting thing for young people to do um, while programming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, are you personally a um, very um, visual person? Yes. Yes, I am. I think that's, that's what took me to, to the front end world instead of the back end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to tell us the this, this story? When, when, or did you choose? Was that a, um, a path that you selected or did it just happen? Um, how did you end up being more on the front end than the, than the back end? Well, um, when I finished high school, I got to study a two-year degree. It wasn't really a degree in itself. It was like a course where I, I was learning web design. And I, I realized that I was really bad at designing. Like it wasn't my thing. I really love design, but I wasn't a designer. And I couldn't find, figure out a way where I could enjoy working around design without being a designer. And so I eventually realized, oh, this is called front end. And in front end, you can actually be very close to design and to designers and collaborate in the creation of websites without having to be a designer. So I think I found that that point in, back in after high school, it must have been like 2012. And also at the same time, there was this kind of wonderful moment for CSS back then, because we kind of, in 2012, began having these um, CSS gradients and border radios and CSS native animations. And, and it was like this amazing, amazing time for CSS that I ended up like falling in love with it back then. And um, with this kind of opportunity of working very closely to the design without being a designer and having some great tools that I didn't have back in 2008 when I was a teenager at high school. Did you, did you decide on CSS or? Um, because I, when I see HTML5, I, I hear CSS, JavaScript, and, and HTML. 
and CSS is just one of the three uh, components of the recipe. Um, did, did you decide to focus on CSS or how, how did that selection came to be? I think I just found it more, way more creative. Um, I really, really, really like the idea of just changing one line of code and seeing the result instantly. Um, mm -hmm. I also like learned JavaScript back then, but it wasn't, it wasn't my favorite thing. You know, it wasn't as, as instant, the changes and all that. And like the work with CSS. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you stay with CSS or did you try to use some supersets and less and SAS and etc.? Eventually, yeah. Eventually I tried to learn some SAS. Um, and it kind of allowed me to do really cool stuff. I remember once I, I did this, for loop in SAS where I could create this animation that went all through the color wheel, like from red to red all around the color wheel. And I remember it was like 10 lines of SAS and 1000 lines of CSS. <laughs> And right now, if you ask me right now, it was very silly because I could do that with the filter in CSS, the hue rotation, but I didn't know that back then. And, <laughs> and it was so fun to make that it, when I eventually realized I could do that with one line of CSS, it was like, oh no, <laughs> but it was fun. It was a very fun thing to do. <laughs> We're all ashamed of looking at what we did in the past. <laughs> I can remember some projects. Say, oh boy, if I if I had to look at the code again, I would be really really mad. <laughs> um, a couple of weeks ago, um, another guest told me the story of uh, how she learned JavaScript and really focused on vanilla JavaScript for for a very long time, and uh, before using jQuery and something else. Um, do you have? Or did you think there is an advantage or, or maybe a disadvantage, I don't know, of uh, having worked with CSS for such a long time before going to uh, using some supersets? Is it, is it something that you would recommend nowadays to really focus on pure vanilla CSS for a while and then use something else, maybe uh, maybe more powerful uh, um, superset language? Yeah, I think I would recommend like first getting into the vanilla language and then after that get into to superset. Um, for for example, or as an example in SAS, um, SAS doesn't really forgive you any CSS mistakes, whether CSS does. Like if you forget um, a colon in CSS, then everything is okay. I mean, CSS won't read la that one line of code, but if you actually do that in SAS, SAS will scream at you and say, oh no, what is this? <laughs> I'm not compiling your code until you fix this. So it's actually very good to have a proper and strong knowledge of CSS before getting into SAS because SAS will be a little more strict on you. And I think the same goes um, for, for JavaScript. And kind of if you have issues with the basics, then you will actually make those issues bigger, bigger if you go into React or any other kind of framework when would be the um the good time to say okay now i know enough of, of css i can go to something else or um what would be the um the the pointers that would say okay now maybe i should use something else maybe it, is it on, on your skills is it on the setup it, it's maybe all of the above i don't know what would you say I think the most important thing if we focus on css is learning specificity like 
knowing how to create the selector and not creating selectors that will actually be held on you in the next couple of months um, that will help you learn not to create technical depth too fast. So I think um, once you actually get hold of how to create the good selectors and how to work with classes and tag selectors and no, never to use ID selectors, then I think that's a good moment to actually begin looking at SAS and all other, other preprocessors. Do you have a preferred preprocessor? I think my favorite one was always SAS, but I don't have anything to back it up. It was just, I really <laughs> love the logo and I really love the website. <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean... That's it. Fair That's enough, my reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Sometimes it's because it was the first one we learned. Uh, sometimes it's because of logo. <laughs> no, but I guess um, the most important is um, if it's working for you, then then that's what it is. Um, yes. Maybe maybe you would have some problems if you were to work on a bigger project and and there was a different preprocessor um, in use for the whole team. But um, as long as you can pick, then uh, your choice is, is as good as any any other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you mentioned uh, React and uh, and and uh, Vue. I think you mentioned Vue. Oh, or did I imagine it? Any, anyhow, <laughs> what, what kind of stack do you work uh, with nowadays? Right now, I'm working with React, um, and we got some backend in Node.js with Express and a Postgres database. So that's mm -hmm. that's what I'm currently working on. And would that be the ones that you're excited about, and you 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 want to research um, in, on your on your not, not necessarily on your free time, but on your not project time? Um, or would you drift towards something else? I have to say that I really love Express. Um, so I, I wouldn't change Express for anything. I feel really comfortable with like SQL, so I wouldn't change PostgreSQL. And I really like React. The only feeling I got about React is that I never worked on a serious and official project with Vue. And I would love to because the only thing, the only times I tried Vue was when I was trying to do something out, like out of fun, not for a real project. So I would like to work with Vue simply because I, I never worked with it in a very serious way. And I think it can be very powerful and I think it fixes a lot of things that React has. But I need to actually get a project to do that, to have fun <laughs> and try it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I need to jump in. Um, what do you define as a serious project? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess the things that I'm being paid for, <laughs> like if they <laughs> okay. pay me, is it a serious one? On the other hand, I mean, I really had serious project that I did for fun. Um, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I had in mind. Um, nowadays, I could say sometimes my, my personal projects are bigger than the projects <laughs> I'm paid for. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I, my, my definite or my um, my answer to that would be, I guess, in terms of complexity. Um, if we are um, many people or more than than one person on one project, then it starts being being serious. That's because a I good have point. To compromise with somebody else. Yeah. Um, and um, if I have to um, really build it for uh, or to la build it to last, instead of always being able to uh, start from scratch or or do some kind of tabula rasa, 
um, mm-hmm. that would be a sign for me um, that it's serious as well. Yeah. Um, you, you said you wouldn't change Express for, for anything. Uh, what do you like so much about Express? I think it's easy to learn for somebody who doesn't do too much backend and came from the world of PHP. I think Express actually was easy for me to learn and that's, that's a good thing. And I think it really has a good documentation. It's very throttled. Um, it's very complete. And I think that's, that's why. I mean, I eventually tried different one. I don't even remember the name of the different one. <laughs> and it was good, but it wasn't like the others. Even, and, and it doesn't have a good logo. And I like it anyway. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's telling. That's telling. It's, it's not like SaaS. Nothing is like SaaS logo. <laughs> I guess I have to add a, a logo to the to the show notes. So then really <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. Um, in your in your bio, you mentioned um, community. Um, yes. When when did you when did you start getting involved with communities, and uh, how did you start with it, and and how did that evolve? Well, um, when I finished high school, I began like this two years course of web design, and in that meantime, in those two years. The NGO contacted me and asked me if I wanted to help a university with a couple of students. So they have courses at their, that university is the National Technological University of Argentina. It's a very important one. And they were looking for people to help students of HTML, CSS, PHP courses. And they knew I did that. So they invited me to actually begin working in that uh, university. So I said yes, and I realized that I really enjoy working there, and I that and that I learned so much because when you have an opportunity to teach somebody something, you suddenly realize this very humble moment where okay, I don't really understand this, <laughs> and you actually <laughs> need to rethink a lot of things and relearn a lot of things to be able to teach somebody something, and eventually I end up. And being a teacher, they're a professor because one of the professors left and my boss back then was like, okay, I, I feel like you like this. Do you want to become a teacher? Do you want to give it a shot? So I eventually at 20 years old, I became a teacher at the National University of Technology in Argentina. It was very scary. And honestly, it didn't went really well the first time because I was learning but well, eventually I got better. <laughs> you were you were teaching at twenty four students of eighteen and nineteen. <laughs> For students mostly of 25, 35 years old. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was it was a really good experience, and most most of the people, like ninety nine percent of the people, were really nice and very welcoming to me. Um, mm-hmm. There were a bunch who weren't, but it always happens. So um, I kept on, on working in there and I eventually realized there were such a thing called conferences that were happening all around the world, except in, in Latin America, because we are always a little bit behind on those things. And that they actually had this thing called, called for proposals and that you could send a talk idea. And if they like it, they actually invite you over there to give a talk. So... Um, I was like, okay, I, I could do this because I like teaching and, you know, three hours class to 30 minutes talk is pretty much the same. 
sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw there was this conference happening in US. It was the CSS Conf back in 2014. So I created my talk idea and sending over to the call for proposals and they rejected it because, you know, it happens. But I, mm. I really wanted to go. So it was like, okay, how, how much money do I have from, from my house, high school years and from my savings? Um, okay, I put it all together in a trip to US and I say, okay, I'm going to this conference, even though I'm not speaking and I'm having that experience. So I jump on the plane at 21 years old, um, <laughs> alone, my first ever trip alone to, to a foreign land. And it was again, very, very, very scary, but it was, I think, one of the better choices that I made in my life. Um, because once I got there, there was this drug B on a conference. It was a conference, um, organized by Nicole Sullivan, who is like, I, I love her so much and I appreciate everything she has ever done and the opportunity that she gave me there because there was this drug B event, um, where you could actually go there on the day and give a talk. So I had that mm -hmm. talk that I wanted to do prepare because I wanted to give it in the track B. Um, and Nicole came to me like on the, on the same conference day at the, at the, um, the entrance of the conference. Um, and she knew my name and she was like, Oh, you're, you're Evangelina from, from Argentina. I, I know you, you came here and you actually have a talk to do at track B. And she was like, there's, there's a, a spot, uh, track A, like the main stage. Do, do you want to give the talk there? And I was like, mm. okay, I am so scared. <laughs> but it's one of those things when the opportunity goes in front of you, you have to get it. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I will do it. It didn't went well because I was so nervous. I, I think I, I totally forgot how to speak English back then. <laughs> <laughs> but but I really like it. And, and honestly, people were so nice to me, you know, even though my talk wasn't at all the best one, it wasn't like really good. Still, be, people were so kind to me and they were so, so thankful that I came to that stage and tried to explain something, you know, that I really, really enjoyed that experience. And I think back then it was one of those change, life changing moments that's what I'm very, very thankful for, for Nikon Sullivan to actually, you know, asking me if I wanted to jump into that stage. Um, eventually I came back and I said, okay, I want to do this again. So I, at the end, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I insisted on sending talks to uh, call for proposals. I kept on having thousands of rejections, but from time to time, people began, you know, liking my talk ideas and inviting me over to give conference talks. And I, I end up like doing conference talks, um, from time to time. I really like that. And I knew that I was extremely privileged to be able to do that because even though I was from a Latin America country, still I had the money back then to actually travel to us and be able to have that one shot of doing a talk at a CSS Conf US. Um, and eventually I had this, this very bad feeling of, Hey, why, why don't we have conferences here? You know, why, why am, am I always traveling to Europe, Australia and US and not to Peru or Colombia or not? In, why don't I speak in Argentina? 
And mm -hmm. it was this very sad moment where I realized there was no, no local events. Um, we didn't have them. So it was like, okay, I could either keep on complaining and waiting or <laughs> I can do something <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, team up with a couple of friends and a couple of other, other front-end developers that really love CSS. And it was like, okay, we're making this happen. We are creating CSS Conferentina. And we did. We did two editions of that conference. Um, and I think it's also one of the proudest moments of my life, creating a conference that's hopefully as diverse as possible. It can always be better, of course. And trying to, you know, take care of the people and be able to create in a space where they can enjoy what I enjoy and creating also opportunities because it was also trying to open up for um, people from Latin America to be able to have this first speaking experience. I didn't want to create a conference in Argentina and have only people speaking from US and Europe because it was like, Why would I do that? I have so much talent in Latin America. We need to show it. Um, so I, when we began talking about, okay, what kind of speakers do we want? We were thinking diversity in a way as we want people that attend our conference to be able to see themselves. So we wanted to have 50-50 of at least 50% of a speaker being Latinos. Mm -hmm. So we worked really hard with that. Um, Our idea was to actually try to make people understand that they could do that too, you know, that they didn't need to be from US or from Europe to actually speak at conferences and that they didn't need to get on a plane to US to actually attend the conference. So we were really hard with that. We have a, a lot of things that, that didn't work out. We have a lot of trouble with inflations and, and a lot of Argentinian and Latino America things that that's, that's also like really, really nice to talk sometimes to people from Latino America about, okay, how to create a conference with so much economic troubles. Um, mm -hmm. because it's, mm -hmm. it's not really easy at all. And all the hassles and how, how do we actually have live translation? Because if we don't have live translation, then why are you making an event? Because people don't really speak too much English in here. So if you actually make an event with English people speaking and you don't have live translation, that then you actually throw in the diversity of the boat because you need mm -hmm. to actually, people that pay for the ticket, you need to make them understand the talks. And also ticket prices, it was very, very hard because um, there's always an economic crisis in, in Latin America whenever, in no matter which country you go to, there's always economic crisis. So it was like, okay, I cannot charge $200 tickets. There's no way, no one is coming. Or worst, the people that always go to conference will be coming and not new people. So... Mm -hmm. We were really hard to have like $30 tickets and to have a lot of scholarships and a lot of students discounts. Um, for the second edition, what we did, I'm really proud of it. We actually released the numbers, um, to the public because after all, it's a nonprofit conference. So you can actually find it. Uh, I can provide a link later. We, pro we created oh, yes, a, please. yeah, page for CSS Conferentina where We actually tell people how we actually use the money and how we got it and how we actually, like, what did we do? Okay, we 
paid for plane ticket, hotel night, translation, and this and that and this and that. And the total amount is this one. Um, just to make people understand where that money goes to, because I think that's really important in, in nonprofit conferences. You are buying a ticket and you're putting your money in there and you, you know, you want it to go to the right places. You know, I wouldn't be proud of myself if I charge in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, $2,200 tickets. And then you go to the events and I spend that money on lights and Christmas trees. You know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to create that. And I was really conscious of not wanting to create that. Like if I don't have the best coffee at my event, then it's okay because at least people will be able to come and they will be able to understand the talks because I provide light translation, because I provide cheap tickets. Uh, and you can make good conferences on low budgets. It's hard, mm. but you can do it. Um, you can do it, so, yeah. Yeah, wait, stop speaking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no problem, no problem. Um, I, I just said the last um, edition was in 2018. Is that, is that yes. right? Yes. Yes. Um, did you did you imagine doing something something new now that we are all still at home um, due to the uh, to the pandemic, going remote and and leveraging the the virtual space to um, to promote this diversity and and uh, and uh, reachability even more? Well, I, with all the honesty in the world, I had a really hard year, so it was like I was focusing on getting through. 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so I wish I wish I, I would have been able to actually think about that, but no, I just couldn't. But it actually sounds like a plan. Sounds like something we can do, especially because 2021 might not be exactly like 2019 yet, you know. I don't know how yeah. fast we are getting out of all this. When I think about um, online conferences, I always uh, have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, first of all, because there is not the, the hallway track and the ability to really talk to people. Um, but in your special case, um, where you have um, uh, some kind of language barrier, um, that would make sense. Uh, the the conferences happening in in the US, I mean, virtually in the US or in Europe, are then not necessarily a good uh, fit for your audience because they will be in in English or, or in any other language. And if your one of your requirements is to have it in the um, local language of the attendees, then that's a niche market that you that you yeah. have. And that's something that would be um, very interesting, I guess, for the community. Yes. Maybe something to ponder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I saw you are a Google developer expert. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I am. T tell us that, that story. Okay. I think a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, um, somebody pinged me on Twitter. Um, he told me that there was this program called Google Developer Experts um, that if I wanted to join, and that it was a program to actually help speakers from conferences to actually give talks. So mm -hmm. they could provide um, kind of the expenses if you had to travel to some part of the world to give a talk and the conference couldn't cover it. So you could go over with this Google Developer Expert team and ask them to cover that flight for you so, could, so you could go there and give these talks. Um, so I 
say, yeah, I'm interested. I went through, I think, two interviews. One is more like community interview where you you tell them what you do for the community. And I think the other kind of interview was more technical, just to know that you have an idea of what you were speaking about. Mm-hmm. And eventually you, you are in and it was very nice. Um, I'm still there. <laughs> um, it's a really nice bunch of people. Um, and well, this year has been a little bit weird for cool developer experts because we weren't really able to travel, but, mm-hmm. but usually you actually see each other from time to time in different events around the world. Yeah, that sounds, sounds like a, like a big family. <laughs> Are you still teaching? I am still teaching. Yes. We are actually finishing our last course of the year today. Today I'm getting, um, my students works to actually rate them and know if they're pass. So yeah, today's the last day of the course. Ooh, okay. So yes. pressure is building. Yes. For them, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> no, not for you. Not for you. Um, how, how much of your content, um, do you refresh, uh, every year or every semester and uh, how, how up to date do you, do you want to be with all your content? Well, um, we try to like recreate the whole curricula once every two years because Mm -hmm. we think that making it more like making it faster is not, that's not a word, but making it more often is not really a good idea because if we make it like once every year or once every six months, then that means that you as a teacher cannot really improve over the new stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Because whenever you teach something new, you are always learning and you are always finding new ways to teach something. So if you have been teaching CSS animations for a while, you know what's the the best way to teach CSS animations. But if suddenly you need to begin teaching TypeScript, then you need to get used to it. You know, it's not only preparing Mm -hmm. the class, it's iterating over it. So you need a couple of instances to actually get better at it. And if we change the curricula once every six months, then we are not really giving ourselves the chance to improve on it. And also, we really try to teach people things that are um, well-established. Like, I want to teach them JavaScript frameworks, yes, but I don't want to teach them a JavaScript framework that came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the edge, but that might not work for them in the future. And if they are beginners, then you actually need them to learn something that will actually, they will take with them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you always have to trade between between the fundamentals and the things that make you employable when you exactly. come out. Exactly, yes. And balance this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that when I when I came out of my, my master's degree, um, I was kind of competing with apprentices <laughs> on the coding <laughs> front. <laughs> I had done so much in theory, but in practice, so little. And so I was really competing with people who just came out of apprenticeship and had coded for two years. Mm-hmm. And so um, this trade-off is always hard to, uh, to balance, yes. I guess. But w- what you were saying with the iteration is very interesting. Um, that's, that's, that's also a balance that you have to find because the, the web world is um, evolving so fast. 
but you have to find the sweet spot between um, still teaching something that is relevant, um, but not too fast that, as you said, you can iterate on it and learn from your mistakes or maybe mistake is just too too harsh of a word but uh, <laughs> things that didn't yeah. go so good and mm-hmm. and could be better and that that's very wise it's very interesting huh i have to think about this <laughs> too established would be turbo pascal nowadays but i'm pretty sure you could do interesting things with turbo pascal nowadays. <laughs> Probably again, but ah, anyhow, <laughs> I'm still still keeping our focus on the on the students um, um, audience, or maybe the people who are just coming in into our industry. Um, would you have any any or one advice for them um, to to kickstart their careers on the right track? I think first of all is, is never be afraid of asking. I think that's mm. something that. At least what my experience for my experience about asking questions was that I was not afraid of asking questions at the beginning. Then when I became kind of a semi-senior developer, I began to be afraid of asking questions because I thought that would make me look bad. And then I realized, luckily, that that was stupid. And then I began ex- asking questions again. And I noticed that per- that pattern with another developer friend of mine, that when they are about to reach a certain level of seniorship, they suddenly begin to, to be afraid of asking questions just in case it makes them look bad. They start a quote in this, you know? And mm-hmm. so... Never be afraid of asking questions. That's the right thing to do, especially if you're stuck with with something. You need to actually ask for help. And it's okay because that's the idea. That's the, the way that you can learn something new. I would say that um, if you have an opportunity in front of you and you're afraid of taking it, take it anyway. Um, I keep on going back to that that US trip that I did and how afraid I was about everything, like getting into a plane and traveling alone and getting to to meet new people as an introvert in a conference that I never been there and just getting into the stage and giving my first talk. I think don't be don't be afraid. I mean don't say no because you're afraid. Just say yes. Have the best time possible, and if it doesn't go the way you want it, well, at least you tried. But it won't be, you won't be regretting of not doing that. You know, you won't be thinking about that opportunity for years to come about what would have happened if I had said yes. No, just say yes and see what happens. Do your best <laughs> and, and be kind to yourself. You know, if it doesn't go the way you wanted. Don't, don't be hard on yourself. It's that it doesn't have to go right all the time. You're not perfect. We are human beings. Oh, that, that is very <laughs> wise as well. <laughs> don't be afraid of asking questions. Grab the opportunities that present in front of you and be kind to yourself. Thank you very much. That is a very nice uh, advice and nice word. Thank you, Eva. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, where can we send the listeners if they wanted to have some more advice from you? Oh, I would say my Twitter account that from time to time, I not only post pictures of my kittens, but also (laughs) (laughs) some kind of developer things. (laughs) Okay. So uh, that's uh, Eva Ferreira 92, I think. Yes. 
I will will add a link to the show notes. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. And this has been another episode of DevOps Journey, and we'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. I hope you have enjoyed Eva's story as much as I did, and uh, that you've been moved by her energy and optimism. Tell me what inspired you on Twitter. I am at Timothep, T-I-M-O-T-H-E-P. Or use the comments section on our website. You will find it at the bottom of the page on any episode page. Also, do a friend a favor and share this episode with them. And uh, do us a favor by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or any other platform you might be using. You will find all the links on our website, devjourney.info slash subscribe. And remember, a journey starts with one step. So let me leave you with this one question. What will be yours? <laughs>